God bless you guys. Good morning, everybody. Everybody doing good? All right, you're going to be doing better by the time we leave here, okay? All right. And why don't you just uh, join with me just for a moment in prayer, if you would, please. Our Heavenly Father, we want to bless you. We thank you today. It's with grateful hearts that we come into your presence, Lord. We think about the work of Calvary's cross and what your son Jesus did. Lord, that uh, your word says that for the joy that was set before him, he endured the suffering and the shame. And we thank you, Lord, that uh, Jesus, your word says that, that Jesus loved us enough. And Father, you loved us enough that you gave your only son, your only begotten son, and that whosoever puts their faith and their trust and their hope in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. And Father, your words that says that whosoever, whosoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I want to just encourage you, congregation, if you haven't done that today, you know, before you leave this place, call on the name of the Lord and you will be saved. Amen? All right, we serve a great God. This morning we're going to be looking at uh, 1 Samuel, and uh, this is a little bit unusual. I've got a lot of scripture today, but I want to give you just a, a real background in this. And uh, I've actually, on, after a couple of these slides, I don't know why I did this, I started putting 2 Samuel, but we're in 1 Samuel for the morning. And I want to give you just a little bit of background. I'm going to kind of skim through some of these, uh, some of these slides. Um, any way to get that back down? They're shaking their head no. Okay. <laughs> All right, well, we'll wing it, okay? Um, so, in, in 1 Samuel, this is a, a, a really kind of an interesting history of the, uh, of the nation of Israel. And we begin, there was a certain man from the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Elkanah. He was an Ephraimite. And he had two wives. One was called Hannah, and the other one was called Paniah. Paniah had children, but Hannah had none. And so, you know, as it was in those days, uh, it was very, uh, it, it was like you were stigmatized. If you were a woman and you didn't have children in those days, you know, many of the people around you felt like you had been cursed by God, that there was no blessing upon you. But we, we learn from this passage of Scripture, I won't read it here, but it says that the Lord... Uh, had closed Hannah's womb. And so the uh, Paniah, the other, uh, uh, Elkanah's other wife, had a number of children, and she would just rub it in. I mean, she was just ruthless in the way that she treated this woman, treated Hannah, and brought her to the place of tears. They would go up to sacrifice and to Shiloh every year. And at Shiloh, as they were in Shiloh, um, making their offerings before the Lord, uh, Paniah would... Uh, Penina would uh, uh, just rub it into Hannah. And Hannah, just she just broke down. She couldn't take it anymore. And uh, she's there just kind of weeping before the Lord. And we pick up again. It says, Hannah stood up, and Eli was the priest. And he was sitting on a chair by the doorpost of the house of the Lord. In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. And she made a vow, saying, Lord Almighty, if you will look on your servant's misery and remember me and forget not your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall ever be used on his head. And in the course of time, Hannah became pregnant. She gave birth to a son, and she named him Samuel, saying, Because I asked the Lord for him. And when her husband, Elkanah, went up with all of his family to offer the annual sacrifice to the Lord and to fulfill his vow, Hannah did not go. She said to her husband, 
after the boy is weaned, I will take him and present him before the Lord, and he will live there all the days of his life. And after she had weaned the child, or the boy, she, uh, she took with her a three-year-old bull, uh, uh, an ephah of flour, a skin of wine, and brought him to the house of the Lord in Shiloh. And when the bull had been sacrificed, they brought the boy to Eli. Again, Eli was the high priest, and she said to him, Pardon me, my Lord, as surely as you live, I am the woman that stood here beside you praying to the Lord. I prayed for this child, and the Lord has granted me what I ask of him. And so now I will give him to the Lord, for the, his whole life he will be given over to the Lord, and he worshiped the Lord there. Now, this is really an interesting portion of the text because the very thing that she wanted, the thing that she had the greatest desire for, the thing that her heart hungered most for was to have a child. And yet when she has a child, she takes the child, probably the boy's about three or four years old at this point, and gives him to the Lord, gives him as an offering to the Lord. And, uh, you know, walks away from it, just walks away from that. And then we see that... Um, as she gives the, after she gives the child to the Lord, we won't read this here, but God blessed, blessed her with another three sons and two daughters. And uh, I mean, she was blessed. Out of, her, out of her want, she gave, and God gave back to her. A good lesson for us in that. Eli and his two sons, Eli was an older man now. His two sons were very corrupt. And uh, Hophni and um, um, Phinehas or Phinehas, and uh, they were corrupt. They were ungodly men, but serving in the temple there with their father, Eli, their father failed to bring correction to them. And all of a sudden, an unknown prophet shows up and gives Eli a warning and says, because you have failed to bring correction to your children, to these two sons of yours that are doing the vilest of things in the temple, he says that in one day, you're going to lose both of your sons. And I want to just kind of move forward from that in 2 Samuel chapter 3. This young boy, Samuel, begins to hear from God. God begins to speak to him, and this is how he learns to hear God. And Eli, the priest, he keeps thinking that the voice of God is like the voice of Eli, the priest. And um, Eli finally says, if he calls you again, say, speak. Your servant listens or your servant hears. And Eli or Samuel uh, heard the voice of God again and said, speak, your servant hears. And that was the beginning of a great, great ministry of this man, Samuel. And uh, so we pick up when uh, there was a time in chapter 4 of Samuel where Israel is going out to fight. And they're going out to fight the uh, Philistines. Um, the Israelites had camped at Ebenezer and the Philistines at Aphek. And the Philistine, Philistines des, uh, deployed their forces to meet Israel as the battle spread. And Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 of them on the battlefield. Uh, this is rare. Uh, in you know, the history of Israel, they rarely lost any wars. In fact, they never lost a war. When they were faithful and obedient to God, they never, ever lost a war. And so this was most unusual for them. We understand, you know, from the time that Moses brought them out of Egypt, they went into the promised land under Joshua, and there were ten nations that they just utterly destroyed, just nation after nation after nation, except for one little battle called Ai, where one of the children of Israel took some of the, the gold and silver and clothing that had been um, uh, donated or, or actually had been set aside for the Lord's, 
And one of the Israelites took it and brought a curse upon uh, the, the, nation, the entire nation of Israel suffered because of what one man had done uh, when he had taken what was dedicated to the Lord. And so when they go out to the battle of the Philistines, the Philistines killed about 4,000 of them on the battlefield. I want you to think about that. I mean, 4,000 in one day. And when the soldiers returned to the camp, the elders of Israel asked, why did the Lord bring defeat on us today before the Philistines? And I want to just answer that question before we move on. In Proverbs chapter 28, verse 13, it says that he that covers his sins will not prosper, but whosoever confesses and forsakes his sins will have mercy. In Proverbs chapter 28, it says, Blessed is the man who reveres God, but the man who doesn't care is headed for serious trouble. Now remember, we got these two ungodly men, these two ungodly men, these sons of Eli, that have taken the Ark of the Covenant and gone out to the battle, and the Ark of the Covenant represented the battle or the presence of God. It also represented within the Ark of the Covenant was Aaron's rod, the Ten Commandments, the, the, the Ten Commandments, and uh, a, a jar of manna. And, uh, but the Ark to them was not like it was to Moses and was not like it was to Joshua. The Ark to them was like a lucky charm. Let's just take the Ark out. You know, we don't care about God. We're just going to take the Ark out. And the ark is going to, you know, give us good luck before the Philistines. And so, you know, they go out, they're defeated, and they're asking the question, why? Again, another answer to that from Isaiah 59, it says, The Lord isn't too weak to save you, and he isn't getting deaf. He can hear you when you call, but the trouble is that your sins have cut you off from God. Because of sin, he has turned his face away from you and will not listen anymore. And that's exactly what happened to these men on the battlefield. But that's not all. We go on, we continue to read. They said, let us bring the ark of the Lord's covenant from Shiloh so that, we may go, uh, that he may go with us and save us from the hands of our enemy. And so the people sent men to Shiloh and they brought back the ark of the covenant before the Lord Almighty who is enthroned between the cherubim and Eli's two sons, Hophni, Hophni and Phinehas uh, were there with the Ark of the Covenant. And when the Ark of the Lord's Covenant came into the camp, all of Israel raised such a, a sh great shout that the ground shook. Hearing the uproar, the Philistines asked, what's all this shouting in the Hebrew camp? And when they had learned that the Ark of the Lord had come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid. Now it's interesting that when we learn more from the enemy about our God than we know about our God, I want to tell you that we're in trouble. But when they learned, when the Philistines had learned that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid. A god has come into the camp, they said. Oh no, nothing like this has happened before. We are doomed. Who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? These are the gods that struck the Egyptians. Remember, this is their enemy. This is Israel's enemy that's saying this. These are the gods that struck. These are the gods that struck the Egyptians. They're, they're listening to this. They're, they're hearing this. Uh, you know, they, with all kinds of plagues and, uh, you know, in the wilderness. And then finally one of them stands up and says, Be strong, Philistines. Be men, or you will be subject to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. And so the Philistines fought, and the, the Israelites again were defeated, and every man fled to his tent, and the slaughter was very great. And Israel lost 30,000 foot soldiers. So we lost 4,000 the day before, and now we've lost another 30,000. 
You know, I, I've kind of been looking through the scripture. I think this is the greatest uh, loss in the history of Israel on the battlefield. I could be wrong on that. Uh, but I believe that this is their greatest loss, 34,000 in one day of soldiers, of fighting men. We understand that from a, a few chapters uh, uh, later, we'll find out that, uh, that Israel's fighting force, I think Israel had about 300,000 fighting men, and Judah had about 30,000. So they lost about a little over 10%, or right around 10% of their army that day. And it says that um, Eli's, uh, the Ark of the Covenant, listen to this, that not only did they lose 30,000 foot soldiers, but it says that the Ark of the Covenant was captured, and Eli's two sons, remember what the unknown prophet said? You're going to lose your two sons in one day? And it says, and Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, died. And that same day, a Benjaminite uh, ran from the battle line and went to Shiloh with his clothes torn and dust on his head. And when he arrived there, Eli was sitting. Remember, Eli is the high priest. Those were his two sons. Sitting by his chair or on his chair by the side of the road, watching because his heart feared for the ark of the Lord. And when the man entered the town and told what had happened, the whole town sent up a cry. And Eli heard the outcry, and he asked, What is the meaning of this uproar? And the man hurried over to Eli, who was 98 years old and whose eyes had failed so that he could not see. And he told Eli, I have just come from the battle line, and I fled in this very day. And Eli asked, What happened, my son? The man who brought the news replied, Israel fled before the Philistines, and the army has suffered heavy losses. And also your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of the Lord has been captured. And when he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell backwards off his chair by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died, for he was an old man, and he was heavy. And he had led Israel for 40 years. And his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant. And near the time of delivery, when she heard the news of the ark of the covenant, that it had been captured, and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she went into labor and gave birth, but was overcome by her labor pains, and she was dying. And the women attending her said, Don't despair. You have given birth to a son, but she did not respond or pay any attention. She named the boy Ichabod, saying, The glory of God has departed from Israel, because the capture of the ark of God and the death of her father-in-law and her husband and she said, the glory has departed from Israel. The ark of God has been captured. Imagine this. I mean, all in one day. The day before, 4,000 killed. The next day, 30,000 killed. Then you get word that your husband and his brother have been killed. And then you get word that the high priest has died and he is dead. I mean, it's just, you know, just, just bad news after bad news after bad news. And this young woman, you know, without realizing what's going on, you know, uh, and, and, and hearing all of the bad news, you know, declares that, you know, she, she's starting to give birth, she goes into labor, and, you know, she doesn't even have the strength to, to complete the labor. She, well, she does complete the labor, but in the process, she herself dies. I mean, can it get any worse? Can it get any worse than that? You know, and I know that many of you have been through some difficult things in your life, um, and I believe that this passage of Scripture probably records Israel's darkest hour in history. But what led up to this was 
It didn't happen overnight. The nation of Israel was in a gradual landslide or downslide, sliding away from God. You know, and I, I went through the congregation this morning asking some of our people what they thought America's greatest sin is because, you know, as I read this passage of Scripture and I've, as I've studied the Word of God over years, I always felt like there was a parallel between America and the nation of Israel. Uh, and, and I'm just talking about in the sense of their sinful nature. But I also believe that there's glorious days ahead as well, which we will read here in just a moment. It's not the end. While it may be doom and gloom right now, and it may look really, really, really bleak for the nation of Israel, there are some bright days ahead of them. But I want to tell you that, you know, when a nation turns its back on God, and when we began to embrace the gods of this world, and that's exactly what Israel had done, they had begun to embrace the gods of the nations that were in the land before them. And God said, if you do this, it will be a snare to you, and it will be your downfall. And we're looking at the downfall of a nation in one day, in one moment, how the nation of Israel has turned its back on God. And, you know, it's just like, you know, the, the ark has become a, a lucky charm for them. They had no relationship with God. They embraced the sins of the nations around them. And I want to just tell you that I believe that there's an incredible parallel with America today. You know, as I, as I mentioned, I began to ask some of our, you know, some of you in the congregation this morning what you thought America's greatest sin was. I thought I, two or three of the responses I got was pride. And I think that there is a lot of pride in America. You know, I mean, we think that, you know, that because we are great, not because God made us great, because we think that because we are great, that we've got the greatest uh, economic, uh, you know, the greatest economy of any uh, nation in the world, we think that we're great. Because we think we have the greatest military of any nation in the world, we think we're the greatest. You know, we think that, you know, everybody wants to flock to America because, I mean, it is a great nation. I wouldn't want to live anyplace else. But if we think that we're great because we think that we made ourselves great, that is the beginning of our demise. That is the beginning of our downfall. And God will take our pride. You know what the word says about pride? That pride becomes a, before a great fall. And if you want to see a great fall of America, you keep going down that track and down that road, and we will see the demise of a nation. You know, Billy Graham or Franklin Graham earlier in that little video said, he, he used that scripture from 2 Chronicles 7, 14, that if my people would humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked ways and seek me, that I would hear from heaven and I would forgive their sin and I will heal their land. But you know the problem with our, our nation today is we don't think that we have any sin. But the Bible says in 1 John that if you say that you don't have any sin, you're a liar and the truth is not in you. The Bible says that all of us have sinned in Romans chapter 3, 23. All of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And, and God says, and the wages of sin, the payment, your paycheck for sin at the end of this age is going to be death and an eternity of separation from God. And God is begging you, and he's begging this nation today, come back, come back, repent of your sins and come back to God. That's what he's asking us to do. And if we continue to defiantly shake our fist in the face of a holy God, we will go down the same road that Israel went down, and it will be the end of America as we know it. God is calling this nation, he's calling you and I into a place of repentance today. And so, you know, we look at the nation of Israel, the, the sins that they embraced. You know, they, um, uh, this is really kind of a, a great story because I'm, I've always kind of been of the mindset that, you know, I want to protect God. 
you know, I want to defend God. But if we'll read chapter 4, and I won't take the time to read it to you today, the Ark of the Covenant has been captured, and the Philistines take it while Israel is weeping, and they place it in the temple of their idolatrous god called Dagon. Dagon was a god of fertility. He was also known as the god of rain and the harvest of crops. And so they put the Ark of the Covenant next to Dagon in his temple. Well, the next day they go back and Dagon is flat on his face, like in a prostate position, kneeling before the Lord our God, before the Ark of the Covenant. And so they thought, oh, accident, you know, we'll just set him back up. They set him back up. The next day they go in and he's down again with his head broken off and his arms broken off and there's just a torso there. And then all of a sudden, you know, the Philistines are starting to get, you know, they're starting to catch on. Then all of a sudden these plagues start breaking out. And, you know, they get sick and and there's rats everywhere. And so being the good Philistines that they were, they sent the Ark of the Covenant to the next Philistine city. And, And the same thing happened there. And they being the good Philistines that they were, sent it to the next Philistine city. And the same thing happened there. Plague breaks out and tumors break out and people are just like, get the Ark of the Covenant out of here. And so they send it back to Israel. And so, but I want to just back up and I want to talk about some of the things that the children of Israel were doing, some of the the practices that they had embraced. There was a God called Molech and um, Molech was this, uh, this bronze statue and he had, he was sitting kind of like if you could almost uh, imagine like the Buddha statue, but not with the legs uh, crossed, but with his arms out. And they would build a fire in the back of this statue, in the back of this bronze statue, and they would take newborn, imagine this, I know it's hard, brand newborn, day or two old babies, when this fire is heated up, and lay them, lay those children into the arms of this God called Molech. They would offer their children to some idolatrous God. Well, I want to tell you that I believe that we live in a land where millions of children are being killed every year through through abortion. This is a sin. It's a sin. It's a sin that our nation is guilty of. We're leading the world in this. We're leading the world in in pornography. We're leading the world in, you know, all of our sexual sins, adultery and fornication, homosexuality. And God will not wink at this. You know, he says, you know, in times past, he's winked at our sin, but he's given everyone the opportunity to repent right now and to turn from our sinful ways. Otherwise, judgment is going to come. And, and judgment is not, you know, we, I know we think it's a bad thing, but if you look at the book of Revelation, God brings judgment so men and women will repent. He says, I'm going to turn up the heat in their lives so that they will turn their hearts back toward me. And that's exactly what happened here in, the, in this, uh, this chapter 4. You know, we read, uh, you know, in the next couple of chapters, there's a man by the name of Saul that's appointed to be king of Israel. And then it doesn't work out for him. And by the time we get to chapter 16, you know, a great move of God is on the way. God raises up a man very much like Samuel. You know, uh, God tells, um, uh, the, the prophet tells, the unknown prophet tells Eli, he says, you know, I've, I'm, I'm going to raise up a man that's after my own heart talking about Samuel going into the priesthood and being the judge of Israel. He said, I found a man. Well, that language is almost repeated in 1 Samuel chapter 16 when God is calling David. 
And he tells, uh, he tells uh, Samuel the prophet, you know, he says, I, I have a man, I found a man that's after my own heart, that, you know, that he's going to love me and honor me, and he'll lead the nation the way I want this nation to be led. And, you know, at the same time, while all of this disaster is going on, when the, you know, the 34,000 are killed, the 30,000 are killed, the two sons of Eli are killed, Eli, Eli himself dies, and then the woman dies giving birth to her child called Ichabod, meaning the glory of God is departed, and they're thinking it cannot get any worse. But I want to tell you, while they're thinking that it cannot get any worse, there was a young man that had the heart of God that was running right underneath their feet, and his name was Samuel, and no one ever saw him. No one ever recognized him. God was doing a work. He was getting ready to change the nation with one young man, and that young man goes in chapter 16, just a few chapters later, and takes oil and pours it on the son of Jesse, a young man by the name of David, and a great, probably the greatest revival in the history of Israel breaks out when David becomes king. And I want to tell you that I believe that that's where we are as a nation. We are living in some very dark, dark times. But I tell you, if we look and if we listen, God has not forsaken us. And I want to just tell you, let me give you some words of hope. And then we're going to close in prayer. There is hope. There's hope for the hopeless. And I don't know what you're going through. Maybe today you feel like, you know, you feel like just like that woman. All of these bad things have happened around you. And it's, and it's getting closer and closer. First it started with the nation. And then it started with her husband and brother-in-law. And then her father-in-law. And just kept getting closer. And then finally to her. But I want to tell you that the Bible says that God has said that never will I leave you and never will I forsake you. That's a message. That's a promise from the Lord God. He said, I don't care how bad things get. You look out there and you may see 4,000 or 30,000, you know, that die. But the psalmist said in Psalm 91, he says, though the arrow that flies by day, he said, I'll protect you. The arrow that flies by day and the pestilence that stalks by night, he says, it won't come near to you. It won't come near to your tent. It won't come near to your camp. Jesus said, those that abide in the secret place of the Almighty, God is saying, I will protect you. I will watch over you. There's hope for you. The Lord is a refuge for the oppressed and a stronghold in time of trouble. Those who know your name trust in you, for Lord, you have never, you have never, say it. Let me hear you say it. You have never, you have never forsaken those that seek you. Amen. Those are comforting words. The Lord makes firm the steps of the one who delights in him. And though he stumble, though you stumble, you will not fall, for the Lord upholds him with his right hand. He says, I was young and I'm old, and yet I've never seen the righteous forsaken or their children begging for bread. But Zion said, and that's probably what the children of Israel say, said in that day, why has all of this happened to us? Why is this happening to me, God? Why is this going on in my life? Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. But God says, can a mother forget her baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget, I will not forget you. See, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands, and your walls are ever before me. And I'm going to just tell you what I think that means. You know, see, Calvary's cross, you see, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands and your walls are ever before me and I will never, ever forget you. Though a mother forget may forget her children, I will never forget you. It's what God is saying. You may be going through a difficult time right now, but I'm going to tell you that God is just right on the verge of a breakthrough in your life. 
This was the darkest, darkest, darkest hour in Israel's history. And just a few chapters later, one young man raises, God raises up and brings the greatest revival and the greatest kingdom reign that Israel has ever known. We are on the verge of that right now as a nation.